you know, I, I've talked about the church for the last uh, several weeks and kind of gave a recap of that last week of all the things we looked at. And then as I was giving this uh, series of sermons about the church, other questions uh, started to be asked. And I thought, you know, I, I really haven't covered just some real basic things about why we do things the way we do them here at First Baptist Church, as opposed to maybe the way the Methodists do them or the Lutherans or the Presbyterians or uh, the Church of Christ, or why, why do we do these things the way we do them? And, and again, like I said last week, I don't want to preach a sermon on being Baptist. I always want to preach a sermon on Christ. And so I don't want you to miss, as I preach this sermon, I hope you see that wh why we do all the things we do is because we're trying to do our best to follow Jesus Christ and to obey Him and to be a people that brings Him all the glory. And so we looked last week at kind of where Baptists came from. We talked about the Baptists sort of arising out of the English separatist movement. So you had the Anglican Church, and, and that had kind of, uh, was a, uh, uh, kind of a little bit of a rebellion against the Catholic Church, where King Henry VIII wanted to get divorced. And so they said, you can't get divorced. The Pope wasn't going to allow it. And so he decided to break off from the Catholic Church and start his own church. That would be the uh, Anglican Church or the Church of England. And so there were people in England who were separating from the Church of England, and we called them separatists. That's where you get the pilgrims and the Puritans and all those. But that's also where the Baptists came from. So around the 1600s, through, through that century, uh, the Baptists were becoming a people and kind of establishing their identity. And then whenever people started coming to the New World uh, and establishing the colonies, the Baptists came as well, and they even, there was even uh, Rhode Island was established as uh, a, a Baptist colony. In, in other words, in Rhode Island, there was going to be no state church because it was founded by the Baptists who did not believe in the, there being a, a, a state church, meaning there's no, there's no church of Texas. There's no church of the United States. And that's a very Baptist idea, as we'll talk about here in just a moment. So that's kind of where the Baptists came from. We talked a little bit about the Anabaptists. And after we talked about the Anabaptists, people came and said, were you saying anti-Baptist? And uh, no, that's I was saying Anna, A-N-A-B-A-P-T-I-S-T, Anabaptist, meaning rebaptized. So these were people... Uh, that at the very early days of the Reformation were understanding that only believers should be baptized. And so I want to clarify that because last week some thought I was saying anti-Baptist. It's Anabaptist, meaning rebaptizers. And so they, we, we have sort of a heritage from them. Really, though, the, the most direct line from the Anabaptists to what exists today, just as FYI, are like uh, the Amish or Mennonites. So they're kind of distant cousins to us. We have a little bit different doctrine than them, but very similar. They're uh, Baptistic in their views. And what we wanted to talk about yesterday was that God is in control and that God can work in His ways to secure our faith um, and to secure it voluntarily, such as that He never will violate our will. In that way, we'll always do what we want to do. And yet God can work in such a way that He can secure your voluntary obedience. God always gets His man. And that's the good news, and that's what we're celebrating today with Norma, isn't it? That even at the end here, of all, after all these years, what did God do? He spoke to Norma's heart, and He filled her with His Holy Spirit, and, 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 and He made a new life and a new creature. And she experienced the new birth. 
And so she's born again, and she put her faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And then we got to celebrate that today, that we can celebrate that God knew every day Norma would live before there was even one, and before the foundations of the world, he said, I love her, she's mine, and that's what we're celebrating today when, when someone is baptized. Uh, that someone's being added to the church and coming in to the kingdom, uh, seeing that. It's just like a, a baby, right? You think of a baby in the womb, and we celebrated, we're celebrating now uh, uh, that uh, Colson and Ashley just had a baby, and you think about that baby's experience of life. You know, we start off in the womb, and you don't hear much. I'm sure everything is muffled, and you don't understand what's, what's being said. You've never really seen light. And then there's this one moment where all of a sudden you come kicking and screaming into the world. And you're crying about it because you're upset. But can you think of the, the transition between being in the womb and then being out in that, that birthing room? That's quite a difference. That's what the new life is like. That's what being born again is like. When we're born again, we see things and hear things we experience like we've never experienced before. And so I think our song was even appropriate there, wasn't it? Talking about the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I want to talk about some things that set Baptists apart. We call these things distinctives because these are things that make us a little bit different than everyone else around us, even though there are other groups that would absolutely believe uh, these things. Uh, these are sort of things that we emphasize. There may be some things that set us apart from others a little bit differently. Everybody turn in your Bibles or look up here on the screen to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10. The first thing we want to say about what we believe as Baptists what we believe in this church, I can just say it that way, is that we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We believe that salvation is by grace through faith alone. We can look at our verse here, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And what does the next line say? And this is not your own doing. When I was sharing the gospel with Norma, what I was very careful to emphasize and what we should always be careful to emphasize to people is that salvation is something God does. How do I know that? This is not something you do. It's in black and white, or it's actually just in white right there. <laughs> it's wood and, and white, I guess. Wood grain and white. Uh, this is not your own doing. It's a gift from God. We've been so amazed at the generosity of those that have given to Adelaide as she celebrated her, her uh, graduation. People have brought her gifts. And she's just stood there at the front door where these wonderful people have just brought her gifts. And what can she do? Just receive them. You know? And be grateful for them. But she didn't get those gifts. They were gotten for her. And that's how our salvation is, isn't it? It's not, look at verse 9, it's not the result of works. We can't say, well, I got baptized, so that saved me. We can't say, I did good things, so that saved me. We can't say that, and the truth is, you don't do good things. You sin every single day. If we wanted to really think about our righteousness, we're not very righteous at all. I mean, can we maybe go a minute without sinning? Maybe, I don't know. Even in our regenerated, Holy Spirit-filled state, we still sin all the time, don't we? And so thank goodness that we don't have to earn our salvation. This is the good news, is that salvation is not a result of your works. And if it was a result of our works, I could say something like this. Well, I heard the gospel and I believed it. I believed it, so that makes me better than this person over here who heard the same thing and didn't believe it. No, 
It's all God's doing, we see in verse 8. It's all God's doing. So you can't brag about it. That's how we have to understand what it means to be born again. That's what Jesus was talking about. You can't even see the kingdom to repent and believe unless, unless God does something. Unless He opens up your eyes. Because if you, can't see, you can't see, Jesus says in John chapter 3. You can't even see it unless God shows it to you. Your salvation is God's work. Not a result of your works, verse 9. So you can't brag about it. You're not better. You know what makes you different? You believed. And maybe the, you know, we could say uh, the, the person over in Europe or in Australia or Native American, or you can think of all the you know, people that are unreached around the world, and you could say, well, I, you know, I believed and they didn't. You know, I heard it. Shame on them for not believing it. No, 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 no. That's not the way you think of it. You should think of it like this. How you should think of your salvation. There's no difference between me and the person who doesn't believe. There's no difference between me and the hardest-hearted person in this whole world, except that God shone His light on me with His mercy and His grace. Then you don't have anything to brag about, do you? I deserve this. God had grace and gave me this. That's how we believe. But we believe in this gospel that salvation is by God's grace. Not because we earned it or deserved it. There is nothing in you that's better than anybody else in this world. And if you ever get an attitude that you deserve to be saved, you're not going to have a very productive and fruitful Christian life. Because you, you've completely misunderstood the gospel. Who deserves to be saved? Nobody. Because there's no one righteous. No, not one. So we, this is it. This is the bread and butter, isn't it? This is why we come here every week. It's because of the gloriousness of this gospel that God has done this for us. And it says in verse 10, go, go to the next verse. We're His workmanship. Your Christian life and your faith is not your workmanship. You didn't build it. God built it. It's His workmanship. We've been created in Christ. God has created us in Jesus Christ for good works that He prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So that's a big one. If we, if we miss that one, we've missed the boat. Because it doesn't matter if you're a Baptist or a Catholic or a Presbyterian or a Lutheran or a Methodist. Or what, if you don't understand the gospel, nothing else matters. You can come into church and you can burn incense and light candles and wear robes and have all the smells and bells and all that. But if you miss the gospel, none of that makes any difference, does it? No, no. Number two, so gospel salvation by grace, faith alone. Number two, distinctive will say that we believe Scripture, this church, we believe Scripture is the only authority for faith and practice. Now we hold, why would we hold such a view? Because we believe that the Bible is the Word of God. We don't believe that the Bible is words of men that they wrote about God. We believe that God and His sovereignty through the power of the Holy Spirit has given us the very words He wants us to have so that we'll know how to trust in Jesus and believe and we'll know how to live. That's our confession. So if we believe that, we don't go with anything else except what God has told us. Look at 2 Timothy 3, chapter 16. We'll put it up here on the... All Scripture is breathed out by God. Now, this is being written specifically about the Old Testament. We believe it applies also to the Apostles' writings in the New Testament. All Scripture is breathed out by God 
and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Do you need anything else but the Word of God to be complete? It says it right there in white and wood grain, doesn't it? It says that the person of God, the man or woman, may be complete. That means the Bible's sufficient to get you to be what God wants you to be. And it equips you for everything that God would ask you to do. So that's why we don't have anything else but the Bible as our guide for faith and practice. Number three, believer's baptism. We just witnessed a believer's baptism today, didn't we? And it was awesome. That made me want to get baptized again. I should have had Jody dunk me. <clears throat> but we believe that, you know, if, somebody, if, if you're not a Christian and someone runs up behind you in a swimming pool and dunks you and says, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then lets you go, was that a baptism? No. What makes a baptism a baptism is that you believe. That a church baptizes you because you believe. Why do we believe this? Because in the New Testament, nobody's baptized before they believe. We also believe that baptism, just like your faith, is something that you decide to do voluntarily. Your commitment to follow Jesus Christ must be voluntary. That's what we teach at this church. That's something Baptists have always believed, and they've died for it. And I'll say that about persecution in the, in the church. It's one thing about Baptists is that I'm glad that when you read the history of Baptists uh, as they were coming up in, as, as a denomination, is uh, we've never been on the killing end. We've always been on the killed end. And it's sort of like when you find out that your child's being bullied at school. It's never good news, is it? It's heartbreaking. I've always said I'd rather my child be bullied than to be the bully. Oh, my child to take care of the people being bullied, not be the bully. And I guess that's one thing that as Baptists kind of came to the game late with these radical ideas that nobody should be baptized when they're a baby because the baby's not being baptized voluntarily. They started being killed for it. Not just by Catholics, but by Protestants too. And Baptists were persecuted and had been persecuted so much they had to get on boats and come to America. This, but, this, but they believed so strongly that you yourself must decide whether you will follow Jesus Christ. That's the principle that they were dying for. No one else can believe for you. you if you're a child and you're coming to church and you think, I go to church every Sunday with my parents, so that means I'm saved. No. You're only saved if you yourself are relying upon the finished work of Jesus Christ for your salvation. And you can say, well, my parents, there's some of y'all sitting in here. I'm looking at you. You can say, well, Chad, you're talking about this church, and here's what we believe. My relatives were here the first day. Ann, Ann Compton's relatives were here the first day this church met in 1889. Or it was 1898. Did I get that right? Yeah, 1898. That's a long time ago. But it doesn't matter, does it? Your pedigree doesn't matter. God's no respecter of man's. What matters is, have you yourself made the decision to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? If you do that, we'll baptize you. So when people say, well, how can my child, how can my, my baby be a, become a member of First Baptist Church? Like I say, just like everybody else. When they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And we'll be watching them and watching what God is doing in their life as they hear the gospel and they respond to it. But we don't baptize infants. We don't pressure our children to be baptized until they're ready to follow Jesus Christ on their own. 
We baptize by immersion because baptisms have taken place that way. Uh, if you look in the New Testament, that's where we can see that they baptized in places where there was much water. We baptize by immersion because it best depicts the portrayal of the gospel, the life of Jesus, the death and burial, and the resurrection, as we just saw. Also, the Greek word for baptism, baptismo, means to sink or immerse. One thing that makes us distinctive is that we believe baptism is symbolic. We don't believe that it's something, this question came up today in Sunday school, we don't believe that it happens uh, or, that, or we don't believe that, that a person must be baptized to be saved. We don't think that salvation is happening when someone is baptized. We believe people get baptized to declare that they've already been saved. Because they have believed, then they, then they get into the water. Because why would you get into the water if you weren't saved? That's like coming up behind someone and dunking them in a certain way, isn't it? But what we teach and what we believe is that this is a picture. I can't see your heart changing. But I can see the effects of your heart changing. The effect of your heart changing is obedience. And whenever you're obeying Jesus Christ, one way we can see that is you get in these waters. And what you're saying is, I'm going to follow Jesus Christ for the rest of my life. And as a church, when we baptize you, we're saying, we're with you. And we believe that God is doing something. And we see that desire and that change as well. So, number one, gospel by salvation. Number two, scripture is the authority. Three, believer's baptism. A fourth distinctive of our church as a Baptist church would be that we practice something called regenerate church membership. Or we could say born again church membership. You have to be born again to be a member of the church. Acts 2.47, we can put it up here. Do we have that one? Okay, there we go. <clears throat> Acts 2.47, and the Lord, look at the very... Uh, the very last part of the verse, and the Lord added to their number, to the church that was meeting there at Solomon's portico in the temple, the Lord added as they believed after Pentecost, day by day, those who were being saved. How do you get added to the church? You, you get saved. You're not added to the church just because you were born into a family that was a member of the church. You are added to the church when you are saved. We would say that only saved people can be admitted as members. The New Testament does not contemplate unbelievers as being part of a church. In fact, unbelievers are, if they're, if they're revealed to be unbelievers, are put out of the church. If someone desires membership in, in this church, they must give a profession of faith and be baptized by immersion according to the way we understand baptism. And if they've done that at another church, what do we ask for? A letter. We ask for a letter from that church to say that their members there in good standing as they've met the requirements for membership in a like-minded church. Why do we ask for letters? That seems weird, doesn't it? Because we see letters being given of recommendation in the New Testament. So we're doing that because we see that in the Bible. And then how do we actually receive someone by uh, faith or profession or by uh, letter? Is that we vote as a congregation to, to grant those letters or to receive those letters or grant letters to those that, are, that have left and gone to another church. So here's what we say as a Baptist church. Only saved people should be members of the church, but we also would say all saved people need to be members of a church for the reasons we've talked about previously in our series, that you can't live the Christian life. There's too many commands that you've been given that, that regard the one another's, that you've got to be involved in the life of the church. Another distinctive is congregationalism. That's a big word. What does that mean? Well, this is, this is probably one of the major differences between our church and other churches 
is that we don't have a hierarchy. We don't, there's not somebody at headquarters somewhere that's telling us to do what, what to do. In fact, as Baptists, we tell headquarters what to do. All right? we, we have, we're a grassroots uh, kind of organization in that every single church that belongs to our association or to our convention of churches in Texas or to our national convention of churches, uh, every church that cooperates together, there's, there's, we're, we're, we're only bound by our uh, willingness to cooperate because this church is autonomous. Who makes the decisions for this church? Hopefully Jesus. But the way that that practically works out is we, we make the decisions. And that's why it's so important that everybody's saved. How could we make the right decisions if we've got people that are members of the church that don't have the Holy Spirit? But what we're trusting is that when we put something to a vote, the Holy Spirit working, when, we, when we're going to have to decide here shortly, hopefully, uh, when we get all our engineering reports and blueprints and all these things from the architects and engineers that they're putting together right now, when we say, how can we position this church for the next hundred years? We're going to have to make a decision. We're going to have to vote. We're going to have to decide ourselves how we're going to pay for this thing, for a new building. And how much are we going to build? No one's going to do that for us. We're going to do that, and the way we're going to trust that we follow God's will in this is that we have people that are praying about it, that are being led by the Holy Spirit to determine how are we going to move forward to this church to reach our community, the state and the nation and, and, and the nations for Christ from right here using a facility. What does God want us to do? What does He not want us to do? That's why if we're going to all vote on it, everybody needs to be a believer. Everybody needs to be committed to Jesus Christ. And people say, oh, you Baptists are so backward, and you're misogynistic and patriarchal, and you keep women down and all that and all that. But remember this about a Baptist church. How many votes do I get? I mean, I am the head honcho. How many votes do I get? One. How many votes does Sawyer get? He's not the head honcho. He's, he's the assistant to the head honcho. But how, but how, how many votes does, does Sawyer get? He gets one. The men, how many does Melissa get? One, the men, the women, everybody, no matter how much money you have or how little you have, everybody's equal here, right? We all have one vote. Now, we play different roles in the church, but everybody is the same. We're all standing beggars at the, at the foot of the cross who've received grace from Jesus Christ, trying our best to follow Jesus together. We see decisions in the New Testament being made but they're ultimately always approved by the group. So we operate by committee. We have committees that will make recommendations, but those ultimately need to be approved by the group. And that's why, for those of you who don't come to business meeting, you need to be there. We only meet six times a year. But if we're making decisions as a congregation by people who are filled with the Holy Spirit who need to make good decisions about how we go forward, let's make a commitment to be at the business meetings and to see what God is doing because we can talk about a lot of things there we don't have time to talk about in here. But we see these group approvals. Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 15 of the Jerusalem Council. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 13. Dealing with the unrepentant man, Paul says the decision of the majority is sufficient. And so we understand that. If there's a majority, if we can determine what the majority is, that means there must be membership. That means there's some people that are in, and then some people you can identify that are not in. And there must be a way to get in. 
And so we see that membership develops very early on in the New Testament. A good example for congregationalism, and that just means that the, the church, the members, are the ones that make the decisions. Who decides who the pastor is going to be? The church. Who decides how much the budget's going to be? The church. We make decisions congregationally. The congregation makes the decisions. And I'm part of that congregation, and we all work together to make those decisions. Now, I, I would say that I, I can lead you. I can lead you. So we would say that the church is led by the pastor or pastors, but the church is ruled by the congregation as they are ruled by Jesus Christ. What are we in a Baptist church? We're the ultimate monarchy because we have one king. His name is Jesus. But we're also the ultimate democracy because everybody has one vote. And that we vote on everything. And people roll their eyes on the way we vote at things. Baptists are so democratic. Did you know that Baptists hold the, like the Guinness Book of World Records for the largest business meeting ever held? It was in 1985 in Dallas. How many of y'all were there? at the SBC in 85 in Dallas. Anybody? I wasn't there. But that was, they had 45,000 people show up and every one of them had a vote. They said that's the largest business meeting that ever took place. They had them in rooms all over Dallas, uh, sitting on the floor, starving to death, voting on who would be the president of the convention. It was a real tumultuous time in the life of the SBC. But that idea that everybody has a voice you can go to the Southern Baptist Convention. It'll be in New Orleans this year. I'm not going to go. But do you know that anybody that's a messenger from any church in the 45,000 Southern Baptist churches, anybody can walk up to that microphone and ask a question. Anybody can do it. Because we want, we have one of, that's one of the things about us is that everybody has a voice. <clears throat> the, you're not special because you're the pastor. Everybody has a voice. Uh, but yet we also know that we, we have our leaders, our teachers, and we do respect them. But we understand that it's not like in a church where the leader is so much higher above everybody else. The reason that you don't call me father, the reason that I, I looked funny when I was wearing that black robe earlier down here, we don't do that, do we? It seemed odd to us. The reason I wear clothes and even wore my tennis shoes today is just to show this, that the pastor is with the people because the shepherd has to smell like the sheep. So we don't live in an ivory, ivory tower somewhere. You know, when we're doing the work day, I knew I had to come up here and wash chairs too. Because that's the way we understand and that's the way we operate. And uh, that kind of makes us in some ways low church. Uh, we don't have all the, all the things that a lot of the churches do with the liturgy and all of those things. But we, we kind of we operate that we're close to the ground. And that's the way that we uh, act, and that's, that's kind of a part of our culture in our church. But a good example of, of what we're doing here as a congregation, uh, that was an aside, uh, what we're doing here as a congregation, think about Paul talking to the Galatians in chapter 1. And remember, the Galatians had started to believe a false gospel. And Paul writes to the Galatians, and he says, You foolish Galatians, who has what? Bewitched you. You foolish Galatians. He didn't say, you pastor of the First Baptist Church of Galatia. He didn't say, you deacons. Who bewitched you? He says to the church, you foolish Galatians. So we take from that this idea that who is responsible for guarding the gospel message of this church? Who is responsible for making sure that our teaching is right, our doctrine is right, and our practice is right? The congregation. 
Because he didn't get on to the pastors or the deacons, he got on to the people. That means we all have a responsibility and a duty. If you're a member of this church, you have a duty to this church. See, it's, it's a privilege and a responsibility to be a member of a church. It's a privilege because we have that assurance that other people are, are looking at us and saying, yes, we believe God's moved into your life. But it's also a great responsibility we have to make sure that we're telling the truth. The whole church protects the gospel. The congregation holds the keys to the kingdom. And if you think about that, you say, well, what does that mean? Well, it means that the congregation decides who's put in the church. The congregation decides who's put out of the church. Why is that? Well, Jesus in Matthew 18, he says, if someone won't repent, you give one person go to them, urge them to repent. If they don't listen, what do you do then? You take two. And then if they don't listen, what does it say? Tell it to the church. And so that's why the church would be the ultimate authority there, the final authority on who's in and who's out, so to speak. So congregationalism. Number six, priesthood of all believers. Have you ever heard that term, the priesthood of all believers or the priesthood of the believer? That's a very Baptist idea. What we believe is, as I said, there's no special class of Christians in the Baptist church. We're all equal. Doesn't matter uh, if you're a Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female, you're all one in Jesus Christ. We're all sons of God through faith. If we've been baptized into Jesus Christ, there's no distinction. So there's not a special group of priests. In the Old Testament, there's a special group of priests that are doing this work in the temple. But what happened when Jesus was crucified? He says it is finished. And what happened in the temple? There was a curtain there and it was ripped in two. Now why, what does that tell us? That tells us that you don't have to be a priest to go in there and deal directly with God. Your soul can deal directly with God because of what Jesus Christ has done. Through the mediating work of Jesus Christ, you're able to stand before God and you're able to have a relationship with Him. In uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse, well, I'll say this. In Hebrews chapter 7 and 8, what we learn is that Jesus is the high priest. There is a priest that, 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 that's singular. That's Jesus. But then we are told in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, that we are a chosen race as believers, that we as believers are a royal priesthood. What did the priest do? He went in and he dealt with God on behalf of the people. And what this is telling us is that we're a priesthood, a holy nation of people for his own possession. That means you don't have to have a priest go and pray for you. Now, is it good to ask people to pray for you? Is that helpful? Yes. But you don't need someone to pray on your behalf. You can pray directly to the Father if you're a believer because of what Jesus has done. Heck, you can pray to the Father and ask Him to save you even if you're not a believer. <clears throat> because of what Jesus has done, He will hear your prayer. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You're competent. Your soul is competent to relate directly to God because of what Christ has done. You are free to place your faith in Jesus Christ. You're able to do that. You know what else you're able to do? To reject Him. God gives this freedom to us as a gift. It doesn't violate His sovereignty or His purposes in election as we've understood from the New Testament, that mystery that I can't explain to you. You need to wait till Jesus comes back to get it explained to you. But God has a free will to choose what He will do and who He will save. And you also have a free will to choose or reject Him. Priesthood of all believers. Number seven, the separation of church and state. Baptists, one of the things we believe in is religious liberty. We don't believe any government should compel a person to what they should believe in their religion. 
Jesus said it like this in Luke chapter 20. He said, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and render unto God the things that are God. Baptists wanted to make sure in the Constitution that there wasn't going to be a Church of America. And they wrote Thomas Jefferson a letter. And he, uh, these were the Danbury Baptists in, in uh, Connecticut. And they were written a letter back by Thomas Jefferson. He said there would be a wall of separation between the church and the state. He guaranteed them that the government is not going to be able to come in here and tell me what I'm going to preach. That's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Now, why would Baptists insist that the government can't come in here and tell me to shut up? Because everywhere else they'd been, y'all are like, we want to do that. It's getting, it's 1155. Uh, don't look at your watches. But uh, uh, it was important. I'm almost done. It was important for, for, it was important for them to know that the government wasn't going to come in and coerce the speech. It was so important that the very first amendment to the con con Constitution, what did it say? Congress can't establish a religion or prohibit the free exercise thereof. Why, why is that first amendment there? Because the Baptists. Because we wanted to make sure that the government wasn't going to come in here and interfere with the way that we worship God. And, we'll, we'll, and even people that disagree with us, we'll fight for their right to be wrong on this. We'll go to court with them and say, no, this is the, this is the way it is. You can't tell people what they ha can believe or not believe if they're not breaking in a law like inciting violence or things like that. If they're just peacefully worshiping in the way they want to worship, we defend them. Because if they go after the Muslims this day, when are they going to come after you? The next one. All right? So, it's, you know, they say politics makes strange bedfellows. That's true, isn't it? But let me make one thing clear about this uh, wall of separation between the church and the state. Because it's gotten a little bit where people don't understand it these days. The idea was to protect the church from the state. Now the state acts like it needs to be protected from the church. No, the state desperately needs the church to tell it what's right and wrong. We live in the most confused moment of American history. People don't even know what men and women are. And so the church must be bold in speaking to the state. And we must tell them, this is what's right. This is what's true. This is God's way. And we need to have Christians who say, I'm going to go into that air arena, and I'm going to have a significant Christian influence in that arena. Because the idea is not to protect the, the government from the church. What are they afraid of? You know, we're out here handing out the cool water. <laughs> we're the salt and the light. You take us out of here, watch what happens. I think, that it, I think in some ways the church is the only thing keeping this nation from descending into total, utter madness. And they're going to come for us one day. And they're going to say, Don't, you can't teach those hateful things to your children that are in your Bible. But thankfully, the Constitution is clear in this country. And whenever people take the church to court over and over again, we win. Because we have the very First Amendment that's always going to be there, as long as this nation is here, that we can freely exercise our religion. And that is something that is critically important to us as Baptists. Number eight, two offices, pastor and deacon. That's all we have. We have pastors and deacons. That's the only offices. Paul, Philippians 1.1 said, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints who are in Philippi with the overseers, the pastors, and the deacons. We have two ordinances. Number nine, baptism and the Lord's Supper. We talked about that last week. And then two other things I want to mention while you're being so gracious to give me a little extra time. I appreciate that. I feel fine, so I'm going to go for just a few more minutes. But that was a joke. Not really. All right, uh, so... Two other things that aren't really distinctives that we care about, though. One is, we are committed to...
to educating people. If the Bible's the word of God, we think people need to learn it. And so people often will come from other churches and they'll say, man, you guys talk about the Bible here all the time. Why are y'all so into reading your Bible? That's a really old book. Well, we believe it's the word of God and the word of God says in Proverbs chapter 15, it says whoever ignores instruction hates himself. But he who listens to reproof, and we get that from the Bible, remember it's sufficient for all the reproof we need. He who listens to reproof gains intelligence. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and humility, submitting ourselves to God's word, comes before honor. We believe what our Bible says, and our Bible tells us to go and make disciples of all nations. Our top priority is to proclaim the message of this word of God to a lost and dying world. We're called to be witnesses wherever you are. You may not go to Germany. I'm not going to Germany. I like to sleep in my own bed. But I'll tell you where I'm called to be a witness, wherever I am every single day, and you are too. God's put you where he has you for a specific reason, to reach the people around you and to support. If we're not going to Germany, though, we can send them, and we're doing that, aren't we? Praise God. But we have education programs. And just like I told you to come to business meeting, guess where I'm about to tell you you need to be coming? Sunday school. Some of y'all laying out of Sunday school, get in a class. We've got good teachers, we've got mediocre teachers, but find one you like. I'd put myself in the mediocre category just because I don't spend as much time on my lesson as I probably should. But you know what? We, we always manage to have a great discussion. Uh, thank God he does that. Even if the teacher is, is, is uh, not given uh, the best, the people give the best. And so we, we learn from one another and we learn what the Bible says to do. So if you're not in Sunday school, the only question I have is why not? And you can make it there, just come a little bit earlier. Well, why do we have uh, education in our churches? Because we believe in it. And then we also support education. Uh, and so that's uh, the last thing I want to talk about is the cooperation that Baptists do. And I'll close with this, our cooperation with one another. You know, I got a degree from the seminary a couple of weeks ago. The cost of the degree was over 20, about $25,000. The cost to, to me was twelve, And then that was covered, the church graciously covered it, and the Honeywell Foundation covered that, so I didn't have to pay for that. So that's, praise God. But that degree was cut in half because other Baptist churches all over the nation we're given to the cooperative program and subsidizing the tuition. And so we're, we believe in cooperating with all the other churches. And that seminary has a huge budget, $30 million. And all the Southern Baptist churches work together, just setting aside some, and, and we're able to educate all the preachers that we need for our churches. We see churches in the New Testament voluntarily uh, meeting the needs as they cooperated together for those that, that had needs. Now I'll tell you something shameful about our Southern Baptist Convention. As our Southern Baptist Convention was founded in 1845, do you know why? Who know, raise your hand if you know why the Southern Baptist Convention was founded. I'm about to break your hearts. I hope you're still listening, even though you're hungry. But the Southern Baptist Convention was founded because the Northern Missionary Agency said we're not going to appoint any more missionaries if their families own slaves. That's shameful, isn't it? And the Southern Baptists said, well, we'll just make our own missionary organization and we'll send out our own missionaries. What a terrible way to say that your, your convention was founded because people were committed to the sin of slavery. 
How do we know that slavery is a sin? Because it's wrong to steal people's labor. Now, there are other kinds of slavery, like you read about in the Bible or indentured servitude, where people would agree, I will serve you for this long, and in return, you'll buy me a ticket to come to America. But that's not how chattel slavery worked in the South, did it? People were bought and sold, and their labor their whole life was stolen. And the Southern Baptists said, we're going we're, we're to hang on to that because they couldn't understand what life would be like without it. But they should have read their Bibles and realized that stealing is wrong. And so they started this convention of churches in sin, and shamefully it took them until 1995 to apologize for it. But I'll tell you something awesome. You know what happened in 2012? The Southern Baptist Convention elected Fred Luter to be the, the first African-American president of the SBC. It's kind of full circle, isn't it? Here was the... Uh, the, the convention that was started to support slavery wound up having an ancestor of slaves being the president. And, I, and here's what I'll say this about your life too. God can take things that start messy and make something beautiful out of them. Because what has the Southern Baptist Convention been able to do over all these years? They've put out the largest missionary organization that the world's ever seen aside from the Spanish uh, Inquisition or conquest, uh, the Catholic, the Catholic uh, conquest of uh, uh, of, of South America so and, and Central America there are 45,000 churches in Southern Baptist Convention about 13 million members that number goes down each year as it does in all denominations we have 3,500 missionaries on the field full-time the North American Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention is evangelizing planting churches revitalizing churches every time there's a tornado or a hurricane you know who the first people in are these people with, with yellow hats. And you know what the yellow hat says? Southern Baptist Disaster Relief. And if you want to be part of that, I can get you involved in that, where you can be a, on one of those chainsaw crews, and you can, uh, as soon as they hear that there's a disaster, they start driving towards it while everybody else is driving away. It's an amazing thing. And we support that through our cooperative program giving. 25% of the money that we give to the cooperative program goes to North American Mission Board. We support six seminaries with 25,000 students. We have the BGCT and the SBTC. We're part of both of those. We're dually aligned with other churches in Texas to support schools and hospitals and children's home. And they're doing ministry for all these people that are coming across the, the border right now. And we'll say, well, they're coming across the border illegally. They shouldn't be here. Yes, yes, but we don't understand where they're coming from. And we know they're going to have to go back. But when they get here, you know what they are? They're cold and they're hungry. And through our cooperative program gifts, we can give them food, shower, while the government does their thing. What are we doing? Mercy ministry. Because those are human beings created in the image of God. And we feel a duty to, to care for them. I serve on the executive board of the BGCT. There are 5,000 churches in our convention. And there's only about 98 people on that board. So I'm very privileged to be a part of that board. But what's amazing is to go to the meetings and see all the things that God is doing. Last year in Southern Baptist churches across the nation, people gave $9 billion. Cooperative program took in half a billion dollars. Lottie Moon Christmas offering was $203 million last year. Annie Armstrong was nearly $70 million. We sent $2 million to hunger relief. It's amazing. And what Southern Baptists can do in these Baptist churches when they all cooperate together. But remember, no one tells us what to do. But we voluntarily cooperate for the kingdom of God.
These are our distinctives as Baptists. But again, I hope you hearing this realize that everything I'm saying points to one thing. We are responsible to hear the gospel and then decide what we're going to do about it. If we are anything as Baptists, we are people that are submitted to Jesus Christ and we worship Him because He's worth it. And there are millions. What do we understand? Why do we cooperate? Why do we do all this evangelism? Why go to Germany? Why do all this? Because there are millions and millions in this world that are marching straight to hell. And you may be in this room today and you may be marching straight to hell. One of our greatest Baptist preachers of all time, Charles Spurgeon, said this, if sinners are going to be damned, at least let them leap into hell over our dead bodies. If they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay and come to Christ. He said, if hell is going to be filled, let it be filled in the face of our exertions. Let no one go unwarned and no one go unprayed for. Are we a perfect denomination? No. Is there a lot of unnecessary drama and all this kind of stuff that comes with that many people trying to cooperate? Yes, there's too much of it. But I hope you can be a part of this church and say, you know what? The way this church operates is beautiful. The lines have fallen in pleasant places. And God is, even in spite of the fact that we're sinful and we're not perfect, He still manages to do amazing things right in front of us and use us for His will.